I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. We're going to start this week with an email from a listener. Don't forget you can email us with any thoughts or questions. Trendy at tortoisemedia.com. David wants to know whether social mobility has stalled. He writes that he is a first-generation graduate who became a professional. He says going to university transformed his economic prospects. But he wants to know if a similar opportunity still exists. He says he is particularly interested given the marked increase in the number of people going to university and whether that is making a difference. Well, I think David has presented us with a big question, Rachel. And I guess the first thing we kind of need to talk about is what we mean by sociability. So let's, let's go personal for a moment. I am, for my sins, a university professor. Uh, my father was a joiner. So in terms of the way in which sociologists usually think about these things, my father was skilled working class. I now count as what some sociologists call the salariat or somebody in a professional or managerial job. So if we're talking about occupation, at least, I think I'm probably being upwardly socially mobile. How, how do you do on this one, Rachel? So uh, I think... My pattern and your pattern, John, are going to come up quite a lot in this episode because my grandparents and parents had stories not so dissimilar to yours. Mine is one of completely flat social mobility. My mother's an academic like you. My father uh, is an economist who we're going to be insulting a lot in this episode, I suspect. And I am also a professional living in a relatively similar lifestyle as my parents. Okay, so you're... You're middle class from middle class background. I'm middle class and working class background. Okay, that's occupation. But that's not necessarily always what people do. Sociologists, that's the kind of question they would ask you and I if they were trying to work out whether being social mobile. The economists, on the other hand, tend to focus on something else. So here's another question, Rachel. So where do we stand in terms of income as compared with our parents? Now, as you might guess... University professors, they're not as well paid these days as they once were. Perhaps we not as well as joiners these days, John. But, but, but <laughs> indeed, that may be true. But at least as compared with when my father was a joiner, um, you know, I were prepared to admit that I, I've been rather better paid. Now, in your position, where you're coming from, a uh, your pe- professional parents, you probably don't know the answer. Do you know the answers to whether you're better or worse paid than your parents? At least at your age now. Your age, you know. Yeah, I don't specifically. Um, I think, though, and this is where the economist story, if it's looking at income and and money, gets a bit more complicated. The big difference in money terms between my parents and me, my generation, is what that money buys you. So, So the biggest obvious difference between my parents and me is housing costs. And therefore, the link between income, which I suspect is relatively similar, and what you can purchase without parental help. 
All right. We're beginning already to discover this is perhaps a bit more comic. Now, the other thing that we're probably going to be talking about quite a lot in the next half an hour or so is about education. And that is often thought to be in part, part, in part of the social media story. Indeed, this is what David Gay pointed to in his own case. So I ended up at university. Uh, I'm one of those classic people of my generation, born in the 1950s, who's first generation going to university. So again, insofar as that, like David, this is thought to be often part of the story of social mobility. Um, I, like David, will be part of that story. Where, where, where do you stand on that one, Rachel? I mean, very similar. I also went to university. By my time, though, of course, that was much less unusual for women than it was in my parents' time. Uh, it's even less unusual now. Uh, I was not quite at the point where women were consistently both more educated and achieving better degrees than men, but I was fast approaching it. Uh, and perhaps this is another difference we'll get into. I went to university at a time where all credible salariat middle-class professional jobs required a university degree. Okay, all right. So, And you've also introduced us to another crucial point, which is the potential differences between men and women. And that's that's another thing that we, we may get to. Now, anyway, now there's one other thing that we need to talk about, which is a little bit more difficult, but um, it's often confused in the debate. And then when we've done that, we can start looking at some of the evidence. So... And it's the difference between absolute mobility and relative mobility. So let's hang on there and see if we can get this straight. By absolute mobility, which is what a lot of people talk about a lot of the time, we mean is are, how many people are now in a different class or in a different income group as compared with the position of their parents? So it's just simply the total number of people who are in a different occupational or economic situation which is fine it's one of the ways of looking at it but it doesn't necessarily get at the question of inequality which is perhaps the issue that a lot of people think underlies the debate about social mobility by relative mobility what we mean is well hang on what is the chances of somebody whose father was in a working class job ending up in a middle class job as compared with the chances whose father was in a middle-class job and they're ending up in a middle-class job. And it's that's what the sociologists often focus upon when they're talking about relative mobility. What, How much more difficult is it a child from a working-class background to end up in a nice middle-class job like university professor or uh, running a um, uh, research agency as compared with somebody whose parents were in a job of a kind. So that's something else we're going to be talking about occasionally, the difference between relative and absolute mobility. Anyway, with all of that preamble, we should probably introduce our first statistic, Rachel. So I think this is a reflection of David's life experience. I don't know how old David is, but certainly your life experience, should we say, John, which is that since... 1951, the percentage of men who are in what we keep calling the salariat, relatively stable, middle-class, salaried jobs, has gone from 11%, just over 1 in 10, to 40%, 4 in 10. And for women, it's gone from 8% 
to 30%. So there's been a huge increase in the percentage of the population that are in middle-class professional jobs. We keep aligning these because there are lots of little stratas, there are lots of different classes, which perhaps obscure the general story. But that's that's been the story of the 1950s generation, the grammar school boys whose parents were joiners, many of which, unlike you, John, got into professional jobs without necessarily needing a degree. And as we will come on to in a minute, is, is less the story of my generation. Yeah, but then we need to explain why all of this matters. So in other words, cru- crucial uh, way of putting what you've just said, Rachel, is that whereas when I was growing up, as a society, most people were in what we would broadly describe as working class jobs. Most people these days, they're not necessarily in professional and managerial jobs, but most people now are in white collar jobs, as we used to call them. They work, they're, they're primarily being employed for their brain power rather than their manual power. And this is just a fundamental change in occupational structure. Now, this is, however, potentially very important. So one result of the so one thing we therefore have to realise is that the chances that anybody's going to get a middle-class job or whatever kind of job will depend on the occupational structure. How much demand is there for people with these kinds of skills? And what happened in the, uh, from the you know, 50s and 60s onwards for quite a while was this, this so-called golden age where the occupational structure was changing very rapidly. So on the one hand, yep, like David, like myself, we go to university and when we get when we come out with our degrees, you know what, lo and behold, there is that nice middle class job for us to go into, a middle class job that would not necessarily have existed, or at least have been as, been as plentiful, uh, 20 years previously. And this is one of the reasons why, therefore, at this period, we had a lot of people who were upwardly socially mobile. And again, notice the word upwardly mobile here, because, of course, social mobility can mean two things. It can mean people going from working class to middle class jobs, it can also mean the opposite. Now, that tends to be not what we talk about. Anyway, we because we saw this expansion of middle class jobs, then lo and behold, um, it's possible for more people to be going into them. And we've got this uh, whole uh, scenario of first generation middle class people. Now, I think it's probably worth saying a couple of things um, about why we care about this, because there is obviously enough, nothing wrong with doing a working class job. And and indeed, we do elide a lot of things. Not all working class jobs are equal. Some are much better paid and give much better security than others. But there are, there are I think, three things that are worth noting. And, and throughout all of this conversation, we're drawing a lot on the research of very eminent people, including John Goldthorpe, um, most obviously, but also others. The first is that the nature of your income is very different depending on what class you're in and the security of that income tends to be higher the higher the class you're in. The second is that if you're in a more professional class your income tends to rise quite significantly as you get older. So a 21 year old going into a let's academic job say is going to earn very differently from a refuse to retire 70 year old going into in in their similar academic job the same is not true for most 
manual work. And the third is that there remains an incredibly strong link between social class and work and life expectancy. Now that may not be because of the nature of the work, but it is still the case and has consistently been the case that if you're in a more middle class job, you are much more likely to live for longer. Okay, so I think what you've been saying, Rachel, is in a sense the reason why we might think that a middle class life is better than a working class one is because there's more secure income, better life expectancy, etc. I think I would suggest, however, there's another issue that certainly fuels the policy debate. And it's really about fairness, right? It's about, well, actually, as a society, do we make it more difficult for some people to end up in the middle class jobs that we are kind of saying people tend, tend to regard as being, quote, unquote, the better ones. Uh, and that that is certainly unfair on the individuals, but also perhaps creates a societal cost because it perhaps it means that we've not really got the cleverest people in the most difficult jobs. Right. And certainly, you know, you mentioned John uh, mentioned John Goldthorpe. This is certainly perhaps in the end what John Goldthorpe is interested in. But again, looking very much at this idea of relative mobility, well, now mobility. So uh, John Goldthorpe says, yeah, there was lots of social mobilities in the 1960s and 1970s, most of it upward mobility, but it's essentially to do with the growth in occupations. What Goldthorpe tries to argue is that, well, once you, as it were, control for or take into account the fact that there are more middle-class jobs now than there were, and there was a particular expansion uh, 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 for a number of decades. Once you've taken that into account, the relative chances of, for example, somebody from a working-class background ending up in a middle-class job uh, as compared with the position of somebody from a middle-class background, that that hasn't really changed, and in his view, has never really changed. And the magic number here is six. Basically, Goldthorpe argues that it's almost been consistently the case, no matter what is the absolute level of sociability, whatever is the change in the occupational structure going on, basically, if you come from a middle-class background, you are six times more likely yourself to end up in a middle-class job than if that is compared with somebody from a working-class background. So normally, when we talk about the what we've been referring and other referred to as this kind of golden era of social mobility. So the period when in the 1950s onwards, you had vastly more people moving from their parents' class to a more professional class. We think about it and talk about it in exactly those fairness terms. We talk about the grammar school era, the ability for people who worked hard and were talented to move into professions relatively easily. And we worry about the potential decline in those opportunities. Um, What we are saying is that while being really well educated compared to your peers with similar parents does make it, has always made a big difference in whether you move up classes. Actually, the real reason why that grammar school group or that, that group of people became more professional was not because the son of the Eaton stockbroker was moving down. They weren't and they never have. But because there was more room at the top, there were more jobs to go around. And that this is true for both men and on a slightly different time period, women. And that is completely different 
from how most politicians, and I think most of us, instinctively talk about social mobility. Indeed. We're going to pause uh, for a moment. Plenty to think about there. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Perhaps we should now mention the economists. It should be said that you know this is an area of contention both within economists and also between economists. But it's quite important because it was it's it, it certainly helped to influence public policy, particularly of the Labour Party under Tony Blair. So uh, the the the, the claim was um, uh, from uh, economists at the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE was that social mobility defined in terms of occup- uh, income. In other words. How, how 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 good was your income uh, now thought of in relative terms as compared with that of your parents? And how, to what extent w- was somebody who came from a relatively low income background, what was the chances of their ending up with a relatively high income as compared with those coming from a high income background? And their argument was, for this initial research, was, well, actually, we think that social mobility defined in income has declined. In other words that coming from a high-income background was more clearly related to whether you ended up in a high-income background uh, than had previously been the case. Now, it should be said, A, this was, whether or not, there are all sorts of methodological arguments about the, these data and whether or not it's true or not is, is debated. And it certainly has to be said that more recent work is now tending in the direction where whatever is the validity of that debate, again, it now certainly looks as though to be the case that nothing has certainly changed very much thereafter and that again you know basically this is still a relatively sticky aspect of our society as well it's not just therefore social class it's also probably true of income so i think there is one other area because we're probably not going to resolve the vicious debate between sociologists people who look at jobs and and economists people who look at income and all the imperfections of data in, on this podcast. But but there is one thing that the sociologists, the people who look at jobs, would say has become more difficult in this period. It's related to that absolute mobility, which is that the chances of you being downwardly mobile, so you are the son of the Eaton stockbroker, but you go into something that is much less professional than they would, has increased over the last couple of decades. Now, some might consider that to be a sign of success. After all, if if what you care about is relative social mobility, 
it's a really good thing if uh, being the son of someone very successful or the daughter makes is, is now less tied to whether you're successful. But it tends to make people feel very more insecure and miserable. And potentially one of the phenomena that we're seeing in politics today, which is increased dissatisfaction with the status quo of the younger graduate class, is exactly this, that there is now more downward mobility for them than there used to be. They have to cling harder by their fingernails to maintain their job prospects, um, as well as obviously paying more to go to university and having to do more to get those job prospects. And that it is actually that group that has seen their their situation substantively worsened over the last few decades. Yeah, and this gets us into a, into a crucial debate. But just before I expand on that, um, I mean, basically, roughly speaking, um, still the case that once you use a fairly complex class scheme of the kind of sociologists use, about eighty percent of people end up in a different class than their parents. Although it may it 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 it, it may be you know, only from a, a professional job to not quite such a professional job, etc. But that now, basically, for at least every one person who's upwardly mobile, there's another one who's downwardly mobile. And that is, again, a difference from what was going on in the 60s and 70s. But this takes us back. This is, you've, you've, you've cued us perfectly onto the issue of education. Because what David, again, asked us about, in case, because you know, he was asking, well, hang on, is it still true that education has the same benefit? Now, the reason why, one of the reasons why the work of The Economist, who said that, um, uh, income inequalities have got worse. The the, the, the social mobility in terms of uh, uh, income uh, uh, income position has had 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 got we got stickier. Was indeed because the expansion of not just because of the expansion of education, but also that they were arguing that educate that those who were more highly educated, the rewards from that education were greater than they had once been. So therefore, you were expanding the, the overall level of education equality. But that therefore meant that for some politicians, therefore, the clue to ensuring that more people enjoyed the benefits of social mobility, by which they really meant upward social mobility, was, to use a certain phrase, education, education, education. But this is the thing that, you know, John Goldthorpe and many of the sociologists question. And it's, and it, think about it, it's not, it's not uh, too complicated. As David has said, there are lots more people now who have a university degree. Um, when I went through the system, it had expanded and that allow, helped allow me to get into it. But it was still very much a minority of us, you know, 10, 11, 12 percent of us of the relevant age group who were going to university. It was still essentially an elite level education. By your stage, it wouldn't be quite so elite, but it's still relatively elite. But now we've got, you know, 40 percent or so of people going to university. But then you need to think about it. If there are more people who have the same qualification as you, your relative advantage from that qualification is at risk of being less because, you okay, you've got your lovely uh, degree parchment, but so have lots and lots of other people. And therefore, the potential returns in relative terms uh, from that from your education um, is now being less. And essentially, one of the reasons why Goldthorpe says, look, you know, you can expand education, but it won't necessarily change that inequality in social mobility because in the end, 
um, the, the, uh, the, the ability of uh, education to transform people's lives is a function of how many, how many lives have been transformed. So I think there are a lot, a lot of big ideas here that we should try and unpack a bit. The first is that politicians across all parties have indeed seen and talked about education as a core lever for social mobility. So Tony Blair talked about education, education, education. Under David Cameron and Michael Gove, who was the education secretary at the time, they talked about the fact that more boys from Eton got into Oxbridge than children on free school meals. Those are two people at the sort of extremes of the class distribution. Uh, More recently, Boris Johnson said that talent was evenly distributed, but opportunity, particularly educational opportunity, was not. This is a long-standing concern of politicians. But what the research suggests is that, one, education does indeed make a huge difference to an individual's chances relative to their similar peers. So if you if you pass the 11 plus and someone a bit like you fails it... Rachel, Rachel you may to... need to explain what the 11 plus is because most people don't face it these days. You're of course completely right. Uh, well, you can explain the 11 plus. You had to go through it, John. Um, I did indeed have to go through it, yes. So the 11 plus was an examination that virtually everybody at uh, age 11 had to take. And essentially, uh, as a result of that, you either said you could go to a grammar school, which is something that Rachel referred to earlier, which where essentially the emphasis was on academic education, or you went to what was known as a secondary modern school, uh, where the emphasis was much more on technical education. And to put it crudely, grammar schools were where the middle class were educated and secondary modern schools were where the working class were educated. This began to change in the late 60s with the first introduction of comprehensive schools. Uh, there are still a few areas in England where we still have grammar schools, but uh, it's now very much minority. But uh, yes, it was definitely in my day. Uh, that was pretty much what everybody had to go through. Did you have to take the 11 plus Rachel or not? No, I would didn't live in a grammar area so I was uh, I was spared okay, so... but my I remember my my mother saying her sort of vivid memory of being in the top of primary school and doing the 11 plus and, and really seeing the realization on these relatively young children that their lives had ended in some way compared to their hopes because of this exam and, and the point there is that's true that that relative to people who have come from a relatively similar background your educational attainment makes a very big difference to how much you succeed what it doesn't so far over the last 60, 70 years make a huge difference to is the structure of society, the relative structure of society. And the theory about why this is, is one, people from professional backgrounds make very, very sure that their children are well educated and go to good schools. So to give another personal example, I uh, went to primary school in London during the kind of London sink school, secondary sink school era. So I went to a state primary school, my local one, that in a, in a relatively middle class area. Not a single child from my primary school went to the local secondary school. The parents moved out uh, of London or they managed to get them to a private school or they found some other way. But, but professional parents work very, very hard to make sure their children are educated. And second... There are lots of other forces on children that are not expressed in education. So it's the parents taking you to galleries or having lots of books around or reading you a bedtime story or being in a stable environment where you know that there's going to be plenty of food. All of those conditions, which are much stickier to change 
than education have a very profound effect. So, so the conclusion, which is a miserable one, and I loathe it, but but we should be clear about what the research said, is that being more educated is a wonderful thing in and of itself. It can change individuals' life chances. And obviously, if you have a society with a completely different requirements for jobs and you refuse to educate anyone, let's say we refuse to teach anyone to read and write in this country, it would make a big difference to the wealth of the country as a whole. It doesn't seem to have a huge impact on relative social mobility. Yeah, or another way of putting it and is that um, education doesn't make much difference to the amount of social mobility. In, in effect, what's much more important is what's happening in the economy and therefore what's happening to the occupational structure. It's the creation of demand for graduates and gra- graduate type skills that matters, not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily the supply, but it does matter. It does matter to which individuals fill those jobs. And you know, if, you then, if you're concerned about fairness, and if you indeed, as you know, to use Boris Johnson's terms, you're in, you believe that talent is, is evenly distributed across society and you therefore want talent to rise to the top, irrespective of where it comes from, then you still might well want to be concerned about ensuring equal access to education, education resources and the education experience you've just talked about, even though you might have to accept that isn't necessarily going to, on its own at least, change the structure of society. If you want to give more people the middle-class lifestyle, you've basically got to give them more middle-class jobs. That, so it's not necessarily... I mean, you, you often accuse me on these podcasts, Rachel, of being, the, of being the miserablest. And I think maybe we can reverse the roles today, right? The optimism about this is that actually you, you can see that basically the answer is that you need to make sure that the economy is growing and creating the kinds of jobs that improve life chances uh, in terms of health, uh, opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what you've got to focus on. And that, and unless you focus on that, focusing on the supply of people who can fill those jobs is likely to, do, to end up being uh, rather disappointing uh, for you. Uh, so I think that's right. And I, I guess a couple of things just to back that point up, if I'm going to be more optimistic the future. The first is we do know we know that it is the case that much more cognitively able as tested at age 10, so people who seem to be brighter or doing better, um, are always more likely to do well than people from the same social background as them. But there's still a huge gap between the cognitively able from a um, more working class socioeconomic background and a professional one. And two, we, we do know that there are some schools in this country that do remarkable odds beating things with children and and have a much greater sort of likelihood of getting those kinds of children into top universities or top degrees than others so so it is both true your point john that if you can grow the economy and change the structure of jobs you create lots of opportunities without necessarily having that downward mobility that people resist so strongly and also the case that the fact that education has so far not radically changed the mix doesn't mean it never could one thing we should we should also talk about before we conclude is that you and i have fallen into what some people would argue is a simplistic version of the social mobility debate which is you know uh, do you, you know if you're from a working class background do you end up in a middle class job 
One of the things that's now being talked about, and I think perhaps in part it's a reaction to the fact that the returns from university education are perhaps not what they once were, is that have we, have we as a society been too focused on how many people get into so-called salary jobs and that actually, given us a society, we do have a need still for people who are, can do skilled manual work, etc., that perhaps we should be spending more time worrying about the quality of vocational education and the ability of people to get into those jobs, at least as much as we're worrying about university graduates. And certainly the work of the Social Mobility Commission, which again is much debated and has changed somewhat uh, in recent years. That's certainly one of the things that they're arguing now is that we know we focus too much on the, 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 the movement from the top to the bottom, although in truth that's not entirely what Goldthorpe is concerned about. But the, the intermediate movement perhaps be, may be at least as important, both in terms of fairness and in terms of uh, us being uh, more effective as a society. So that's that's one interesting uh, debate. The other interesting thing that, that's, that's in, well, to, uh, one you referred to slightly earlier, one interesting uh, now debate about social mobility is about access to housing and the fact that now younger generations have found it more difficult to get into an occupation. So we've got a lot of people at the moment who are downwardly mobile, quote unquote, in that they've got their parents are in own occupation, but they at least at age 30, 35, even 40 are not. And that's another debate that the Social Mobility Commission is getting uh, interested in. The third one, which of course gets into levelling up, is um, the fact that some research suggests that social mobility is stickier in some places than in others. In part, and again, I think it takes us back to a point that we've been emphasising this podcast, in part, of course, because of the fact that the occupational structure is different in different parts of the country. And if people are reluctant to move, and of course, lots of university graduates move in order to find the jobs that, there are, that, they, that they want, um, then you, this can also affect people's chances of moving so far as social media. So, so um, there are you know, debates well beyond simply objective social class that people are concerned about, and which arguably uh, now means we're having a rather more nuanced policy debate uh, than the one that perhaps we were having 20 years ago. Yeah, I think this is really important, and we we should probably do a second episode because what we've really talked about is social mobility in the classic sense from the 1950s to today, where there's a relatively clear story, and now we're moving into a whole series of nuances, not that they didn't exist, that we're uncertain about how they're going to unfold. Um a couple of sort of points building from what you said. So first on technical and professional occupations, we have consistently talked, as you said, about the working class to the professional classes and, and the reverse. But mobility within smaller groups of classes is much, much higher than between those two big groups. The, the concern around technical professions is, I think, twofold. The first is that where we might be oversupplying some kinds of skills to the labour market, so that's the kind of argument about whether we have a too big a supply of graduates in particular disciplines for the number of jobs, or, or even if not Mickey Mouse, they might be good degrees, there just aren't jobs for them. 
there's there's some evidence we're undersupplying some other forms of skills in our education system, and particularly this kind of layer of technical skills, which tend to be relatively compared to other things um, outside professions quite well paid. The second is a is 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 the absolute social mobility point because a lot of the conversations about technical jobs are also a conversation about what kind of economy do we want to be? And do we want to be an economy which has a higher percentage of manufacturing and industry jobs, which people feel pride in and are relatively often stable and well paid? And and also there's kind of a question about what we trade and sell versus an economy which has service jobs at the high end, the managers, the, the, the journalists, and service jobs at the less well paid end, social care, retail but but has sort of hollowed out this economic structure so so i think there are questions outside that relative social mobility points which are about the structure of the economy and whether we're providing for the current and future structure of the economy which, which apply to that i think another really important point we haven't discussed as well as housing is immigration because most of the historical data on social mobility is from the period in which britain was enormous entirely um white society with very low immigration. What we have unquestionably seen recently in Britain, and it's too early to do the same kind of birth cohort studies that most we to talk about, is that children from most, not all, but most immigrant families, and certainly from most ethnic minority background families, do better than many of their equivalent um, white counterparts educationally. We'll see whether it's true professionally and those people tend to be concentrated in certain parts of the country so so we've seen a big rise in both educational standards in London but also a big rise in the number of children often from those immigrant backgrounds going to top universities from London schools over the last couple of decades and that is going to change at one level the picture of social mobility it doesn't necessarily mean that a kid in Blackpool is doing any better than they would have done 20 years ago we just have another group of people in the country who are doing relatively very well and I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that changes and how that emerges in the labour market in the next 20 years. Yeah and it does uh, help to explain why there are now some people who feel that the principal problem about social inequality society now lies with young white working class men, not a group that to to some extent we historically have necessarily regarded as a group that was particularly disadvantaged. But anyway, as you say, maybe in another podcast, we need to look more closely at the social and educational experience of our uh, migrant community. So before we finish, I think we should probably return to David's question. So we've we've been on quite, quite a long and circuitous journey, but he he wants to he wanted to know whether um a similar opportunity to his becoming a chartered accountant as a first generation um graduate still exists and i think what we well john actually why don't you give your answer to that question i i think the answer is it still exists but it is not as widespread as it once was and that certainly, you know, his next question, which is, you know, whether the marked increase in the people going to university. Um, well, it's certainly true that because there are now more people going to university, you cannot necessarily assume that if you do get a degree, it's going to give you quite the advantages that it gave David or indeed uh, gave myself or yourself. And and the reason for that, to his first question, has social mobility stalled? Well, yes, 
one form of social mobility has stalled because there is no longer ever more room at the top. We're not creating more and more of these top jobs. Your relative chances haven't changed so much, but um, that conveyor belt has changed. And and for policy, which we will probably have to discuss in a future episode too, that probably does mean that growth and more good jobs really matters to social mobility. That's it for Trendy for this week. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. We'll be back again next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.